for the last, it's not been the last month, it's actually been the last eight weeks. This is the eighth week that we are um, lingering on the Lord's Prayer. Um, at the end of last year, we actually had talked about what we want to focus on the year 2020. This is way before COVID. This is way before, you know, lockdown, all of that. Um, and the thing that we felt very strongly impressed upon our hearts was to focus on prayer and reading the word of God. And so even before 2020 ever came along, we actually had made a commitment. Okay, this year is going to be about not like some like very far-fetched something, but it's actually going to be let's build on the foundations of reading the word of God, of knowing it for ourselves. It's not enough for the pastor to know the word of God. The people of God need to know the word of God. And so we made a commitment as a community to do the best we can to commit to reading the word of God together. And then second, it is we want to go back to the place of prayer. I don't know if you guys know very much about the history of this church, but this is a church that was known, if anything, it was known for prayer. This is a company of people who are very aware that we wouldn't be here if God hadn't answered prayer. He's the God who has preserved us, who birthed us in the place of prayer, and he continues to carry us forward as a community through the power of prayer. And so we wanted to make sure that we rehash these foundations for our entire community this year. And would you, like, I, I don't, I don't even think anybody's foresaw COVID and all these things happening. And once that's, that happened, like at the end of February ish here in Korea, we realized just how much wisdom and divine timing was in this focus that we have for the year. If, and I really hope this doesn't happen. If we were disallowed from meeting here starting next week, God forbid that happens. But if that were to happen, the fact that you can't meet here on a Sunday, would that be enough to make your faith walk crumble? And our prayer is that it wouldn't. My job as a pastor, our job as a staff is to equip the saints to be able to pursue God, whether we get to meet here on Sundays or not. That is our mission. Our mission isn't just to read the word ourselves and pray ourselves, and then hopefully on Sunday get to impart some of that on the congregation. Our job, if we're doing our job right, is to equip every saint here in this community to engage with God through the word and through prayer. And so this is a reason why we are taking so much time in going through the Lord's prayer. My desire is that by the end of today, today is going to be the last uh, message that we have on this topic. By the end of today, you should walk away feeling a bit better equipped to pray to God, even starting with the Lord's prayer, have that as a template and as you recite the Lord's Prayer, know what it is that you mean by every word and every phrase. And so that's why every week, very meticulously, we've gone through phrase by phrase. What does it mean that our God is our Father? What does it mean that He's in heaven? What does it mean to ask Him for our daily bread? What does it mean for us to come to Him and ask for forgiveness and for His empowerment for us to forgive others? Line by line, we've gone through the Lord's Prayer. And so for today, we're going to be tackling the very last part of the Lord's prayer. And that is asking the Lord to lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. And so today's message is titled, Deliver Me. 
Now, growing up, I don't know what your walk with the Lord was like, but for me, for the majority of my Christian walk, I actually had no idea about the power of prayer. I thought that once you believe in God and you are regular in your attendance and you serve on your youth group praise team and you go to all the retreats, I assumed that as long as you don't commit any like really, really crazy sin, you will be living in God's perfect will. I assume that, okay, once you, you know, say that, okay, I'm saved and I got baptized, then I am going to coast for the rest of my life. And I just hope, I hope that I don't fall into really bad sin. And as long as I don't do that, then I'm going to live a life that is worthy of the name Christian. That was what I believed for most of my Christian life. Now, it wasn't until I actually came to this community uh, this was way back 2008. I came here for first time 2008 and I was so dumbfounded by this young congregation that actually believed that God answers prayer. I was like, really? Like you actually think that he listens to your prayer. Like you actually think that if you pray about your workplace, you're going to see God move in your workplace. Like, like if you pray about your family, you're actually going to see his hand at work in your family. Like if you have financial difficulties that God's actually going to intervene when you begin to invite him into that situation. And I was pretty dumbfounded because it didn't line up to my until then relationship with God. I felt like, okay, he saved me. Now it's my role to just not mess it up. And I don't have, you know, the audacity to ask him for anything else. Salvation should be enough. And now I'm just going to live my life as well as I can without really offending him, without causing, you know, any, any, any damage and, you know, not sinning in any great way. And because it didn't line up with my experience of living my Christian walk, just trying to stay safe, um, I never actually tapped into the power of prayer. What it looks like when a community gathers and commits to inviting God into their current situation with the full expectation that he's going to answer. Like it would be weird if he doesn't answer. Like that would be out of the ordinary if he chooses not to answer. And so I was so dumbfounded by this kind of community that actually believe in the power of prayer. Until then, I had the luxury of dichotomizing my life. I had my church life, and then I had my life life. And they didn't really intersect all that much, and God didn't really have a lot to say about my life life. And it was okay for me to live life that way. And it wasn't until I actually saw the power of prayer at work in people who look like me, People who, you know, maybe hadn't gone to seminary, maybe, you know, hadn't received a very special training. And yet the simple belief that God is listening, the simple belief that he cares about me, that struck something in me. And from there on out, it caused this holy dissatisfaction with where I was. I took a long, hard look at my spiritual walk and I realized I don't want to live this way. I don't want to live 20, 30, 40, 50 years this way, just trying not to mess up and hoping for the best. I want to tap into the more. I see somebody else experiencing the fullness of God in their lives. I want that too. And there was this holy dissatisfaction, this appetite for something more that began to grow in me. And that was what happened with me when I first came to this community. I began to dream 
And I began to ask God for more and began to see God as a God who wants to be intricately involved in my life. He cares about me. He cares about my daily bread. He cares about the fact that I know that I'm forgiven. He cares about every detail of my life. And that's what I learned from this community. Now, when we've been going through the Lord's prayer over the last few weeks, we went through the first half. And then as we were tackling the second half, we talked about, this is how we bring our needs to God. And we have many needs. You know, we have many needs before God. We have a need for physical provision. If God doesn't provide, no matter how hard you work, how many hours you put in, how hard you look for jobs, it doesn't matter how hard you try. If God doesn't provide for you physically, then it's game over for you. So we need to call out to God and ask him for our daily bread, our physical provision for every day. We come to God because we have a need for forgiveness from God. I don't have enough time to actually go really, really in depth uh, when it comes to understanding that you're fully forgiven. Many of us, especially if you were raised in an Asian background or sometimes, um, you know, I was born and raised in Chile and Chile is actually very um, Catholic as very strong Catholic roots. Um, Something that, a lot of, you know, Catholics are known for is this idea of like eternal, like guilt, like penance. Like you have to prove to God that you are sorry and you have to like beat yourself up because of this. And you never feel the full embrace of the father. You walk around your life feeling condemned, feeling like oh, I'm probably embarrassing my father in heaven. I'm probably messing up and I'm, I'm probably, he's probably ashamed that I am a Christian. He's probably ashamed of me as a daughter. And you walk around this entire life crippled by the lack of understanding that he has fully forgiven you, that you are free, that you are embraced, that you're fully a child of God. And so this is a need that we have, whether we can articulate it or not. And so when we come to God in prayer, We cry to God that he would forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We not only have a need to know that God has forgiven us, but we also have a need to forgive others as an extension of the gospel. And we also need forgiveness from others. I've offended more people than I would like to admit. I have done wrong to more people than I would like to admit. And this is, I need people's forgiveness. I need to be restored in relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. And so when I pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, it's an understanding that I have been forgiven and therefore I am called to forgive. I have been forgiven and now I can ask for forgiveness for my brothers and my sisters. And then what we're going to be talking about today is our need for victory over temptation and our need for deliverance. Now, I want you to take a look just at at this, you know, at this list and just think for a moment what it would have sounded like to people who were sitting at the edge of the Sea of Galilee, listening to this rabbi called Jesus for first time. People who knew that they were cut off, people who looked at their lives and And felt very inadequate. Like, I don't know if I would be accepted in the temple courts. I don't know if I would call myself a religious person. I don't know if I could call the unapproachable God my father. And to hear this teaching for first time, it must have been mind-blowing. 
I am just a common like peasant. I'm a, just a, you know, a, a nobody. And yet there's this rabbi who's saying that there's a God who I can call father and he cares about my daily provision. He cares about the fact that I'm forgiven. He cares about me forgiving my fellow brothers and sisters. And he cares about the fact that I have to deal with temptation day in and day out. And I cannot do it on my own strength. I have a need for victory over temptation. And I have a need for deliverance. This must have been a really mind-blowing revelation for them. For first time, they realized that this is not just the God of the religiously upright. This is the God who comes to the sinner. This is the God who comes to the broken and the needy and the hungry and the thirsty, the people whose lives feel like a mess. This is the God who seeks me. This is not the God just of the ones who are self, um, self-sufficient, but this is the God of the poor in spirit. This is not just the God of your ancestors who literally provide a daily bread in the desert, but this is the God who provides for me today. It must have been so mind-blowing, so paradigm-shifting that they can now call this God a father and they can come to him for their needs. Now, the portion that we'll be focusing on today is lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For us to be able to pray this portion of the prayer, we first have to come to terms with two sobering realities. Two sobering realities. First reality is that our life is going to be filled with temptation. No matter how religiously upright you are, you will face temptation here on earth. Is there anybody here who never faces temptation? Like ever? Like somebody who's arrived at perfection or... Right? Okay, so we're all in the same boat, right? We all face temptation. It looks differently. It looks different. It's expressed differently in every person's life. But all of us in this lifetime will face temptation. That's the first thing that we need to acknowledge. This acknowledgement will keep us humble yet vigilant. Because there are Christians that will not acknowledge that life has temptations, which will lead them to spiritual arrogance. And then inevitably, when they fail to meet their own standards, it's going to lead them to secrecy and shame. Because they'll have to hide their sin. They'll have to hide the fact that they deal with temptation. So acknowledging that life is filled with temptations is very important. We haven't arrived yet. The moment that you said yes to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it doesn't mean that every temptation in your life just magically kind of disappears. No, it means that now you have a Lord and a Savior on this side of eternity as well. So acknowledging that there, there are temptations in life. Second acknowledgement is that there's an evil one. There is an evil one. I need to say this very, very clearly because there are, uh, there are groups within the Christian faith who will begin to water down this theology, actually. Like, well, Christianity is kind of like about making you a better person. Like about working on your habits, about working on your behavior and your thoughts and your emotions and health. All those things are true. But if you lack the acknowledgement that there's actually evil in the world, and sometimes uh, some uh, translations of the Bible will actually say, deliver us from the evil one. So we're talking about Satan here, right? 
That's not a word, like that's not preaching that you hear very often on Sundays, but we have to acknowledge that there's evil and there's an evil one that is actively at work against your life. We need to acknowledge this. I'm going to get into that in a a little bit more, but we need to acknowledge those two things. There is temptation in this life and there is an evil one that is hard at work to sabotage your spiritual walk. First Peter four twelve it says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's saying, Hey, expect temptation. Expect trials and persecution. Expect these things. When they come your way, don't be like, what? I never thought that was what I thought I was saved. I thought that I was on the right side. You know, don't be surprised by that. First Peter four twelve says as if something strange were happening to you, expect that first Peter five says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, resist him. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. So it's saying, know that there is an evil one. And he's not just casually kind of waiting for you to slip up. He's prowling like a lion waiting for a time to pounce on you. Resist him standing firm in the faith. So these are the two things that we first need to acknowledge. There's temptation and there's an evil one who's hard at work. But these are the two encouraging promises also kind of encapsulated in this really short phrase. Number one, God has promised to lead you. God has promised to lead you. Second, God has promised to deliver you. You are not alone. You are not helpless. You're not powerless. God has given you the spirit of God, the spirit of wisdom to lead you. He has given you the spirit of comfort to encourage you. He has given you the gift of prayer and supplication, the gift of community to strengthen and encourage and equip you. We see in this prayer that God depicts himself both as a capable shepherd that leads you and also as a mighty deliverer rescuing us from the clutches of the evil one. First Corinthians 10, 13, it says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. So you're not alone. It's actually common to mankind and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. It means that there's going to be testing. There's going to be an evil one, but God has designed it. So you will make it through. God has rigged it so that you will make it through. He has rigged it for you to be led and for you to be delivered by God. Now let's take a quick look at the word deliver. This is very important because the meaning of deliver is far richer than what we think. It is from the Greek ruomai, ruomai. Not that that means a whole lot to anybody, but it means not just rescue, but this is the really important part that I want us to emphasize today to pull to oneself. It means if I am delivering this Bible, delivering this Bible from this stand, I am pulling this Bible to myself. 
And this is the picture of what God does to us. It's not just, I'm going to pull you out of the crutches of the, the clutches of the evil one. I'm actually going to pull you out of darkness and now into the marvelous light. I'm pulling you to myself. It's not just, I'm pulling you out of danger, pulling you out of eternal death, pulling you out of sin. I'm actually pulling you out of darkness and now into my marvelous light. I'm bringing you close to me now. That is what it means when God says he's going to deliver us. Some commentators, they say that praying, deliver me, it means deliver me to yourself and for yourself, Father. It means it implies removing someone in the midst of danger or oppression and to the rescuer, to the rescuer. That is what it looks like to be delivered by God. It's not just, I'm going to remove the danger and the opposition. It means I'm going to rescue you, pull you out of there, and I'm going to bring you and rescue you to myself, to myself. The word says, but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And the word says, God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. That means that when we pray to the Lord, lead us not into temptation, it means praying, lead me to you, God. Lead me into your light, not just out of darkness. I want to enter into your marvelous light. It means praying, deliver me from evil. It means deliver me to the good one, away from the evil one and to the good one. It is more than just a cry of preservation. It's actually a cry for intimacy. Does that make sense? It's not just, okay, I want to live my Christian life, just avoiding the really, really bad sins. And hopefully I make it out. Okay. No, it's a call and a cry for intimacy. I don't want to be entangled with the sins and the ways of this world. God, would you deliver me unto yourself? I want to be close to you. I want to know you. I want to know that you're real in my life. I want to taste and see that you're good. I want to see you at work in my circumstances. God, I want to draw closer to you. It's a cry for closeness, for fellowship, and for communion with God. So when we are fighting this fight, don't think that we are merely fighting in the defensive. Like, oh, Satan, stay away from me. Temptation, stay away from me. No, that's not how God has rigged it. God has designed it that we would be overcomers and actually go on the offensive, advancing the kingdom, drawing closer to him, not just avoiding the bad, but pursuing righteousness, pursuing holiness. That is what it looks like to pray, deliver me. We are not just hoping to avoid the bad. We are actively pursuing the good. We're saying, God, I want to draw closer to you. And so we need to have this full understanding of what deliverance means. When we are saying deliver me, it's not just rescue me, God. I'm in need. It means I'm in need, God, but I want what's good. I want what's right. I want what's true. I want to pursue you, God. Draw me to yourself. Deliver me unto yourself. Now, three different areas that I want us to focus on today about uh, where we need deliverance. The first is that 
we need to acknowledge that we need deliverance in our daily journey of sanctification. This is a term that Pastor JP talked about last week. The moment we are saved, it means that we're fully justified by the finished work of the, on the cross by Jesus Christ. Nothing you have done, like you haven't lifted a finger just yet. The moment that you're saved, we say that you're in right standing before God, not because of anything you have done, but simply because of what Jesus has done for you. And that means that you're fully, uh, fully justified. But living the Christian life from there on out until you die and you see Jesus face to face, from that point until you see him face to face is a journey of sanctification. It's a daily journey where the Holy Spirit works in your life to form you in greater and greater likeness to Jesus Christ himself. It means that I don't magically become like Jesus and all my sins disappear and I no longer have temptation and I no longer hate my neighbor and I no longer have trouble, you know, you know, with anger issues or whatever. No, it means that now you are on a journey with the Holy Spirit to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And it's a daily journey of sanctification. We need to acknowledge that we are still in need of his help, of his rescue, and of his intervention on a daily basis. There's a temptation that comes your way, and you need God's help, God's aid not to fall into it. I need to say this very clearly because sometimes we whittle down the Christian walk just to, maybe it's a commitment issue. Maybe it's just my thought patterns just need a bit of a lining. Maybe I just need to work on my disciplines. All these things matter. Accountability, community, all of that matters for sure. But ultimately, we need God's help. And I think that's the part that we fail to acknowledge. We actually need a supernatural help to make us more and more Christ-like. Accountability alone is not going to make you like Christ. Commitment alone is not going to make you like Christ. You need the work of the Holy Spirit alive in your life, in your heart, in your thoughts, in order to become more and more like him. You need God to lead you away from temptation and deliver you from evil. Now, I say this very soberly, and I'm going to get, you know, kind of personal here. Uh, you know, I've been a pastor for several years, and I'm not old enough to say, well, back in the day, you know, uh, I'm still relatively young. But in the relatively few years that I've actually been a pastor, um, there's been, you know, different, you know, things that will come, uh, like bits of pieces of news that will come my way of like fellow pastors and laborers in the ministry that I'll hear about, well, they fell into a particular sin. You know, it could be, you know, something to do with idolatry of money. It could be something to do with sexual sin. It could be, you know, something to do with, you know, a, a multitude of things. And soberly, as a pastor, I cannot look at my fellow pastors who have fallen and be like, that's because you just didn't have good accountability. You know, like, I don't think I'm going to fall into that. I have no problem with, you know, with discipline. I have no problem with lust. I have no problem. I'm kind of immune. Like, I'm just on the right track. No, there is a part in me that it becomes very sober-minded about the fact that I am not immune. If it happened to them, it could totally happen to me. I am not exempt from temptation. And so this brings a humility to me. This, this makes me come to God in prayer and ask him, God, like I've just, you know, I, I haven't clocked in that many years even in ministry. But if I'm going to make it through, and I'm going to make it through strong, if I'm not just going to start the race, but I want to finish the race strong, then I need your help. 
Because I see brothers and sisters in Christ who perhaps are better educated than me. They have better support networks. They have better counseling. They have better all these things. And yet if they can fall, it means that I can fall as well. And so God, I need your help. I cannot do it just on discipline alone. I cannot do this just on accountability alone. I need your help. Otherwise, I'm not going to make it through. And so this brings sobriety, humility, like this, this, this kind of like disallows me from falling into spiritual arrogance where I feel like that's just for the weak ones. You know, that's just for certain, you know, I bet they weren't reading their Bible. No, (laughs) that's that I cannot afford to begin to think that way. The moment that that happens, you know, the Bible says pride comes before the fall. That moment I allow spiritual pride to creep in, that's the moment where I'm most at danger at falling. And so I must pray for God's keeping power. I need his word to transform my mind. There's so many areas in my mind and in my heart that still need renewal, that still need the washing of the word. I need a spirit to bear fruit in my life. I need love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I need all these things in my life. And so I need to know that I need God's deliverance in my daily journey of sanctification. And if it's true for me, it's true for you as well. It's true for all of us here. None of us are, have graduated from the need of God on a daily basis. We all need him in our daily journey of sanctification. Now, second area that we need deliverance in, and I worded this as cringy as possible, okay, on purpose. It's supposed to make you feel a little uncomfortable, I need deliverance in the spiritual battle against demonic powers. And I need to say it very, very clearly. There's a strange strain of Christian doctrine that undermines this belief that actually there's evil in the world. That actually there's spiritual powers, demonic powers at work. That's just... That's just, you know, it's, it's actually just, um, you know, let's use psychological terms for it. It's just, you know, trauma or it's just this or it's just that. And I try to explain it away. That is not biblical. There is trauma for sure. There is spiritual, emotional health that is required of all of us for sure. But if I read the Bible with honesty and I read the full counsel of God, I must acknowledge that there are demonic powers at work. It is very unpopular for me to say that it's very unpopular for any preacher to say that because it makes you sound kind of like, like one of the weird ones, you know, <laughs> you know, like, uh, they're not going to be invited to a conference. Like, Oh, they're, they kind of believe in demons and stuff. Really? I have a feeling that Jesus kind of believe in demons too. That's the, yeah, that's the gist that I get when I looked at him, he doesn't go to somebody who's demon possessed and he's like, it's a matter of counseling. So actually let me book you for next Thursday. No, he, he straight up says, this is a demon and he casts him out. It's not a matter of like, let me shepherd you and counsel you in the right way. It's a matter of deliverance. It's a matter of casting out a demonic spirit. 
And the Bible is unapologetic about this. The Bible says we do not wage war against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. And so when Jesus walked on this earth, he didn't approach every situation as a discipling opportunity, but some things he approached as a demon to be cast out, as a principality to be confronted, a sickness to be rebuked. And though there are differing opinions on this, the Bible does not give us the license to ignore this entire side of things. And so my commitment as a pastor who's leading this church is to make sure that just because we feel kind of uncomfortable with this language or we've seen it misused before or we've seen it abused before, just because of that doesn't mean that we have the luxury and the license to discard parts of the Bible that are just as true as the rest. Just because it makes us uncomfortable doesn't mean that it's not true. It can be well applied. It can be well uh, executed. But we need to acknowledge that there's, there's a spiritual battle against demonic powers that's at work. For me as a pastor, to attempt to equip a community in li- living a life that is pure and spotless before God without talking about this would be the equivalent of me being a basketball coach and be like, okay, everybody, we're going to do drills today. We're going to learn how to do a nice layup, a three pointer, you know, whatever. And we're going to learn all these basics without preparing you to play against another adversary, another team that is going to be hard at work, blocking your shots, stealing the ball and scoring against you. It would be the equivalent of that. It's saying like, hey, this basketball game is like pretty straightforward. Just learn how to dunk. Just learn how to make this three-pointer or this layup or whatever. Um, it's not, it doesn't work that way. A good coach will not just work on those basics, but it will prepare a team to play against an opposing team. And the same is true with faith. For me to just hope for the best... And just say like, well, there's no evil one. There's nobody who's working against you. Nobody trying to sabotage your Bible reading and your accountability. And, you know, nobody's trying to sabotage. No, that would be very dishonest and disingenuous on my part if I ignored that entire side. And that will leave you very ill-equipped to face the temptations on a daily basis. And lastly, I need deliverance in the securing of my eternal destiny. The promise of God is that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In Romans 8, it says that those who are his, those who are saved and redeemed, he foreknew. And those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So not only do we get to live a life free of shame and guilt and condemnation on this side of eternity, but we also live courageous lives filled with hope and vicarious victory regarding our eternal destiny. We are secure in him. This is the glory of the gospel that no matter how hard I try, I could not resurrect this dead in my trespasses person. It had to be God. It had to be the righteous slain for the unrighteous. He died for you and he died for me. And it doesn't just end there. He also rose again that we would defeat death itself. And he ascended into heaven to send us a Holy spirit and prepare a place for us 
And he will come again for his people and for his glory. That is his promise in the word. That is the gospel. Now, I want to slowly end with this. One of the most powerful ways to stay away from the darkness is developing an appetite for the light. It's not just that you need to try to resist sin as much as you can. It's gonna, you have to start loving the light. You have to start loving righteousness. You have to start loving holiness. In the same way that Pastor JP talked about sin and unforgiveness as something that hinders your intimacy with God, the reverse is true as well. The more you learn about who God is, the more you learn to love his character, his perfection, his beauty, his glory, his compassion, the more you grow to love this light, the more you learn to love, I hate the darkness. He said, until sin be bitter, the love of Jesus will not taste sweet. And so when we pray through this prayer, the Lord's prayer, we fix our eyes on the God that is on the other side of this conversation. And the clearer picture that we get of who he is, the more we learn to love the light and the less of a pull, the less of a grip that the darkness will have over our lives. I'm going to walk us through the Lord's prayer very quickly to pray our father in heaven. It means that we are fixing our eyes on one who is loving, who is wise and who's a protector. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we have to remember and acknowledge that we are approaching a holy, holy, holy one. When we pray your kingdom come, your will be done. We have to acknowledge that God is powerful and he is sovereign in our lives. When we say your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We have to remember that God is a promise keeper and that he is coming soon. When we pray, give us this day our daily bread, it means that we have to acknowledge him as Jehovah Jireh, our provider. When we pray, forgive us our debts, we have to remember that he is a God who is merciful and just. When we pray as we forgive our debtors, we have to remember that the Holy Spirit empowers us and sanctifies us to forgive and to love and to embrace when everything in our flesh would dictate otherwise. When we pray, lead us not into temptation, we have to acknowledge that he is a good shepherd. He will lead us to still waters. He will lead us to green pastures. And lastly, when we pray, deliver us from evil, we have to be reminded that we are looking and fixing our eyes on the one who is a mighty savior and a deliverer. And many of the versions, uh, different translations of the Bible, sometimes it's put in our footnotes. It ends the prayer with this for yours. Oh, God. Is a kingdom and the power and the glory forever, not just yesterday, not just back in biblical times, but forever yesterday, today and forevermore. And we end the prayer with let it be so. Amen. So I'm going to ask our praise team to come up. And I want to just close with this. One of the things that really made me fall in love with this church in particular that I 
you know, I just never got over since 2008. One of the things that really made me fall in love with this church was the fact that there was such spiritual hunger. This sense in which people just are not okay with living at a distance from God. It's not okay to kind of know casually about him, to kind of just know of him, to know enough Bible to kind of get by. But there was this very real and genuine and raw sense of, I need to know God. Like, it's not enough that my neighbor knows about him. It's not enough that the pastor knows about him. Like, I want to know him for myself. I want to know that he's real. I want to be intimate with him. I'm not okay with just living a life that is distant from the Lord. And that is a church that leans in, that holds fast, that chooses to pursue and seek and trust over and over again through disappointments, through waiting, through setbacks. A church that is not satisfied with the status quo. And there's a a humility and an honesty before God. There is encouragement and camaraderie with one another, mutual edification unto the knowledge of God. One of the thoughts that came to my mind when I was thinking, should I commit to this church way back in the day? It was this feeling of like, if I ever grow cold in my love, I know for sure somebody's going to call me out on that. I know they won't just be okay with me becoming dry. They're not going to be okay without fighting for me. They're not going to be okay without challenging me and provoking me and reminding me and encouraging me over and over again. And there was such comfort in that because I knew that it's so easy to lose the fire. It is so easy to just fizzle out, to you know, be all in for God and then just you know a few days later, a few weeks later, a few years later, just think, oh, that, that was just my youth. That was my 20s. That was back when I didn't know any better. But I felt like this would be the community that would challenge me. You know, even in your 30s, even your 40s, your 50s, your 60s, you can still pursue God and love him with all you are. You can still draw even closer. There's ways to go still. You haven't exhausted him yet. You haven't reached the end of him yet. There's still more for you to taste. There's still more for you to see. And I felt such comfort in that because I felt like I was in good company. I feel like this is the kind of church that I I can envision myself running with, not just for this season, not just for the next month, but for years to come. People that are in love with God, people that just can't get enough of it people that are not okay with living at a distance and these are the words from hebrews 12 it says therefore since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses let us throw off everything that hinders and let and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us new philly let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You Philly, let's fix our eyes 
on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's not grow tired. Let's not grow weary. Let's not think that we've done enough and now it's my turn to sit out. Let's continue to persevere, fix our eyes on him and know that the race, it isn't over yet. There's still so much for us to see God doing. He's not done with his church. He's not done with you. There's so much more that God wants to do. If only we would let him. If only we would partner with him. If only we would begin to cry out to him once again.